Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Rob Fortis Fortney here. I'm a former editor at Muscle Mag International, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. Rob's in a singing mood today as well. He's been serenading us. This is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and all-around all good guy. I'm so excited, <laughs> and I just can't hide it. Okay. <laughs> Are you taking that on the road? I can't wait for it. And today with us... um, we have a guest, uh, Kay Meisel. She's on my powerlifting team, and she's also a yoga instructor and uh, mobility instructor, uh, a bunch of other things. Kay, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to talk about some news and then uh, get into you know Kay and what she does and then have a topic that's fitting. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Indeed. In, in, in fact, Kay, <clears throat> hop in on some of this if you have any thoughts as far as all this news here. Okay. Um, the first thing is just almost silly, but I wanted to mention this. I think it's in the new edition of uh, Flex magazine, but they were mentioning how Phil Heath is going mainstream. He's going to mainstream eyes, instead of um, bodybuilding. And the examples of the media that he's been in were like, the Enquirer, The Globe, The Sun. I'm like, you know, you guys are just further embarrassing yourselves. If it, yeah. I mean, I guess arguably that's mainstream, but please, you know, that's not the kind of ambassadorship that we, that we need. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, already, I mean, I always found it odd, right, that things like maximal strength, you know, limit strength, like uh, Dr. Hatfield uh, calls it, or... Um, maximal speed or you know a sculpted human physique and the artistry of it all these things seem naturally appealing to me and instead we obsess over jamming an orange ball into a little hoop and i, I don't know and again i'm not that down on basketball i just this is what we get though you know as far as claims through the mainstream so thanks a lot that's fantastic great um other stuff here's a freebie alert for everybody um google and I can't believe they've done this. They have just taken a serious um, stab, in a way, at all these diet analyzer programs. Um, for people who aren't familiar, if you buy a diet analyzer through a company like Esha Research or some of these others, some of these things cost as much as $1,000 a year to uh, keep you know, re, uh, state, reinstating your, your ability to use it. Well, Google apparently does this now. Um, here's something quickly from Alexandra uh, Sifferlin. It says, Google's latest search innovation is nutrition. Before this week, if you Googled how many calories are in a carrot, you would see a mumbo-jumbo list of varying calorie counts from many different sources, often with conflicting results. Now users can get in-depth, clear, and curated results to their dietary questions. Uh, we've seen an increase in queries over in time uh, related to health, they said, so they wanted to add this feature. The new data, and I think this is important, is legit. The new data is um, primarily from the nutritional database maintained by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So I think this is very interesting. It says, of course, not all foods are in there, um, like fast food, for example. Um, and anybody who's used a diet analyzer program to figure out how many nutrients they're getting of different kinds, first of all, you've got to be careful. Vitamins and minerals not real accurate on, on a three-day food record. But protein, okay. carbs, and fats, pretty accurate uh, if you have a, a decent uh, analyzer program. And what makes one different from another is the database of foods that they have. You know, or do they have combined meals, like you know, a bean burrito with cheese, instead of having to do individual ingredients. But I think this is amazing. It's amazing freebie that anybody now can simply Google different foods and they can do their own you know, day-long nutrient analysis kind of thing uh, with a little bit of searching. So. And we'll put Dr. Lowry to the test here because I just used this in real time. So how many grams of carbohydrates are in a medium carrot? A medium <laughs> carrot. 
Well, there's a medium carb. I don't know. Um, Twelve to fifteen. Ah, six. Wow. It must be a small medium carrot. Sixty-one gram carrot. Okay. Well, there you go. No, it's pretty neat. I just tried it in real time, and yeah, it comes up. The first thing that comes up is a big block that says how many calories, and then you can pick your quantity size. I know we have then, listeners that are interested in keeping track of their macronutrients, you know, so... Right that, it comes up with all your macros and then also uh, micronutrients. So, yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, let's see, what else here? This, I don't know if I mentioned this before or not. This is actually from March 2013, but did I mention Death Wish Coffee before? Listen to this. No, I don't. Death Wish Coffee promises 200% more caffeine. Uh, claims to be the strongest coffee in the world. Um... While your everyday cup of coffee tends to contain about 250 to 300 milligrams of caffeine, actually, that'd be a big cup of coffee, um, depending on how you brew it, a 16-ounce shot of Death Wish will hit you at about 660 milligrams of caffeine. Wow. My God, that's more than three Vibrin. Yeah. Uh, now, this is from a Canadian source, CTV News. Um, there you go. It says, the safety of caffeine had recently been in the spotlight with reports of more than a dozen deaths related to caffeine-laced energy drinks. Honestly, people, you know, these are stimulants. You know, but, I mean... How many milligrams of caffeine did you say? There's 660. Wow, I'm drinking a 24-ounce Monster right now, and it has 240. See, this says, recently, Health Canada capped the amount of caffeine in energy drinks uh, at 200 milligrams. How about that? Uh, it must be based on size as well. But anyway, it no. says this is extreme coffee, not for the weak, <laughs> the website ads. No, Consider yourself warned. I think that's uh, um, actually reasonable to say that because I don't know. Uh, if you've got something like hypertension or arrhythmias, you know, skipped beats and, and those sorts of things, don't go pounding gigantic amounts of stimulants. I mean, duh. You know, it was just the same, almost a similar thing with the... Uh, Ephedra. You know, there were lots of people using ephedra or ephedrine. There was even lots of research that when it's clinically supervised, it could be a safe and effective way to boost your metabolism and, and kill your appetite and that sort of thing. But unfortunately, like anything, people abuse it, you know, and you just have to have a little bit of respect for stimulants. But anyway, so I thought that was interesting. Death Wish Coffee. And before we move on, um, I know Rob's got some questions from our listeners. I want to give a shout out to my brother, um, Apparently, I had written something, oh, God, years ago. Uh, you know, everybody has nicknames and that sort of stuff in college and that sort of thing. And some of his colleagues uh, mention it to him, I guess. And I'm like, what? There's nothing wrong with that. You know what I mean? I, these are um, terms of endearment, you know? So, I don't know. Uh, anyway, anybody who's teasing my brother about some of his old weightlifting sort of um, related, you know, strength or size-related monikers... Uh, you're missing the point. It's a term of endearment. It's actually a good thing. So anyway, I just wanted to give a shout out to my brother because I, you know he doesn't need to be getting any grief from guys who, uh, you know, who don't really know the history of it. I guess. Yeah. Anyway, um, I had just a bit of news real quick. Um, Dan Green came out, and as everybody knows, I think about a month ago he beat uh, John Cole's long-standing record uh, in the 242 raw class, and he went and topped that now, um, down in Australia. Pulled an 800-pound deadlift, but he got a total of 2171 raw at 242. That's a big freaking total. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> if you see the list, he's an impressive lifter, um, but you know, he moved up a, a weight class to get there, but uh, just, you know, it's, I think it's pertinent news, and it's just, he's a solid lifter, very impressive to watch, so. And then we can move on to Rob's stuff. Rob, what do you <laughs> Yeah, no, I have a uh I get lots of questions from uh, listeners, and sometimes I have to sort through them. I thought this one was good. To say. I know we've sp spoken about this before, but, I mean, people seem to always ask this type of thing. So um, eating raw eggs in a shake, he was always told that the bioavailability of egg protein was when, when raw is only around 50%, uh, but around 90% when cooked. Is this true? So I'll throw it to you, Lonnie. Well, I don't have exact numbers. I'd have to look that up. But the reason we cook things is to enhance the digestibility, right? Um, the only drawback I can see with raw eggs, aside from the overblown salmonella risk, in fact, most people blame eggs and meats for uh, foodborne illness when actually vegetables, <laughs> fruits and vegetables are the biggest source. Um, but there's avidin in raw egg, which can 
interfere with some micronutrient absorption and that sort of thing. So it's better to cook eggs. I've heard people in bodybuilding nutrition circles say cook them, but uh, till they're just cooked, you know, not overcooked. And I think that's good advice. And I think it's also an issue with the white versus the yolk. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I've always heard that it was the white. The white's actually more bioavailable cooked, but the yolk is actually more not cooked. Well, and I think there's some antioxidants and other things. You don't want to just cook yeah. the bee Jesus out of the yolk. I tend to, when I make eggs, uh, I'll eat about half egg beaters, half real eggs. And then of the two or three eggs that I throw in the pan, I usually do it like over easy. And then I just sort of smush the yolk all over <laughs> my egg beaters and stuff. So almost like a hollandaise sauce kind of thing. But um, mm. yeah. anyway, um, even with the uh, avidin protein in there and binding up biotin and that sort of thing and interfering with, with uh, you know, vitamin absorption, that sort of thing, you'd have to eat an awful lot of raw egg. I don't, I wouldn't fear, you know, uh, if you know they're fresh and they're not contaminated, I wouldn't fear throwing the occasional egg in a shake. Rob, I think you've done that before, haven't you? Oh, I do it all the time. Yeah. 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 Here's a question, another question that I can direct to you, Lonnie. Um, well, actually, both you guys, because you guys are like the kings of injury. Um, Frank, he emailed us um, towards Bicep, and he's uh, it's a long, a long letter he sent. Thank you, but um, just for the sake of brevity, I'll say what he's kind of getting to here. Um, anyway, it snapped when he was doing some tire flips. Um, his quest one question is he had no pain in that area prior to it um, I know that things just happened but in your experience is there any signs to look out for and I was thinking specifically of you Lonnie because of course as, as some of our listeners know you uh, tore your triceps a few years back so and I've blown both biceps and yeah. one of them well let's go with flipped. Phil first because Phil <laughs> you did that actually flipping a tire yeah I did my second one flipping a tire and there was no pain prior um, it depends on the person. Most of the people I know who blow them, there, there is no prior pain at all. Um, it's just something that happens. And I guarantee if we go back and watch a video of him, if there is one, what he did is he had a bent arm. He picked up the tire on a bent arm. Um, talking to my, my physicians uh, and surgeons, he said, when a, a bicep tendon will not blow if you're at full extension and try to, like, curl a, a sub or super maximal weight. It's when you're arm is bent and it gets straightened by a super maximal weight um, that they pop. Actually, you know, it's, so. it's also interesting. Most of the blown biceps that I've heard about from people are, are from deadlifting, um, but Phil, I know that wasn't you, right? But No, see, and all the ones I hear are mainly strongman stuff. It's, oh, yeah? It's time a lot and stones. Um, but it sort of goes back to what you're saying about the, you know, nearly extended, forcibly yep. extended further, you know. Forcibly extended arms, yeah, and my first one I actually did have pain for about a month before that I ignored, but the way thing was, it was referral pain up in my shoulder. So I thought it was a shoulder issue the whole time. And it was, you know, I was I was feeling pain at the origin, even though it was the uh, the opposite end that was where the problem was, and it blew. I think you make a good No, I mean, it's very normal that I have any pain prior, and even the injury itself is not really painful. It just feels weird. The surgery sucks. That's when the pain comes in. Yeah. But uh, I think it's a good point about... Um I wish we could give people tips, you know, about, yeah. oh, look for this, look for that. I've had chronic elbow tendonitis for years, you know. Uh, I've always liked doing, you know, lying triceps extensions and that sort of thing. And they just, you know, they make my elbows sore. And I think yeah. over time you can end up with tendinosis, which is sort of a scrambling of those nice linear fibers, you know. But as far as the day mine blew... Uh, I'm actually going to write it up, I think, into a case study for a journal because there was – I felt great. There was no indication. Uh, I had too much, way too much weight on, though, doing, you know, hit heads, skull crushers, whatever you want to call them. And uh, it just sort – and it didn't sound like a snap either. At least in my situation, uh, it sounded like a, a wet washcloth being torn. It was really disturbing, actually. And the, and the bar just started collapsing toward my forehead. I had a grad student – uh, spotting me, and I thought, oh, my God, here we go, you know, and um, I, I've told the story about it before, so I'm not going to dwell on it, but I, I was sent home from the emergency room with some uh, ibuprofen, <laughs> I'm like, you guys, I no, <laughs> so I, I followed up with some channels, some sports physicians that I know, and, you know, had it properly reattached, <clears throat> yeah, not much, not much warning, unfortunately, but like Phil, 
for years, I would keep doing what I was doing because it was effective or I liked it. I just enjoyed that kind of, you know, exertion or lifting or whatever. And then um, you just have to have respect because you don't know if it'll let go. You can't live in fear either, though. So, you know. You know. No, you can't. So I don't know. I actually partially tore a hamstring uh, doing yoga and didn't even notice it until I got home and realized that my leg was filling with blood. And uh, it didn't hurt at the time, but it certainly hurt the next day and, and while it was healing. And there really wasn't anything I could do for it since it was only partially torn. I just had to take care of it until it healed back up. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How black and blue did you get? Oh, I was black, black. I have photos somewhere, and um, you could see where it was running down. It pulled up in my foot, and my foot was black and blue. Yeah. See, and Lonnie, yours was a tendon, right, or was it the muscle? No, no, it was a tendon. The tendon totally let go from the left Did you have much bleeding? I was black and purple from my wrist to my nipple. Really? Yeah. Wow. I I took a picture of it, actually. I posted it on some of the old, old articles on T Nation. Um, because I was just stunned at the effusion, you know, and all the bleeding. I'm like, oh my god! See, and I had a little, but not not as much. And but I, you know, with muscle tears, I've seen you get a lot. Of course, there's a lot of blood flow in there. But uh, mm-hmm. so. yeah, I've heard people say basically that if it's a stinging, if it's not dull, like a dull ache, if it's a stinging, and especially if there's bruising, the bruising is going to be delayed. Obviously, it's going to take yeah. a couple of days. But then you know it was a tear. Obviously, yeah. So. So, Fortress, what else? No, that's about it for now. <laughs> okay. I've got one, actually. Um, there was a guy on our Facebook page, and I, I can't remember your name. I apologize. He was asking about creatine kinase levels again, because Phil and I have been tossing this back and forth for a couple of weeks now, people asking questions. Yeah. And, um, you know, his CK levels are high. seems like no matter what he does, and he just wanted some insight. And you're going to be over reference range. I mean, I've done dozens if not hundreds of blood draws looking at this stuff in research and uh, I myself and it's very hard for somebody with appreciable muscle mass to get their creatine kinase down around 100 or you know whatever the the reference range is and I think there's a couple reasons one you've got more muscle bro (laughs) I mean when you carry that much more muscle mass it's all releasing a little bit of creatine kinase you know and especially if you're sore upper and lower body and Rob saw how we did this before in the lab. Obviously, eccentric lifts, you know, the lengthening, slow, heavy lengthening contractions are what does this. They cause the soreness and the CK release. And um, you may not get into a reference range. You are, you just have to appreciate, just, just like body mass index, you know, doesn't apply to you. You know, weight for height would always make you look obese if you're an experienced lifter. It's the same thing with creatine kinase. You are a tiny percentage of the population. You're a minority um, in that regard, biologically, and you're not going to fit that mold very well. And on top of that, some, there is something called idiopathic hyper-CKenia, believe it or not, which is just some people dump CK like crazy, and um, they haven't really linked it to anything serious. So that's my input on that. You know, you're, if you've got more muscle mass and you're doing lots of negatives, even if you take five days off, you may never get your CK levels rock bottom like an average person that has, you know, half of your muscle mass. So, gotcha. anyway. Okay. So, we'll talk to Kay now. All right. Kay, thanks. <laughs> Again, thanks for joining us. Um, we'll kind of do like we do with everybody else and just how did we get started in, in fitness in, in general? Okay. Well, um, I was I was a pretty active athletic kid. Um, my parents were the sort of people that always sent us outside to play. And um, I got into sports. I was encouraged to play sports. I played soccer, and I was um, I did diving, and then I was on the track team for a while. But I didn't continue it into college. Um, I picked I picked up yoga. Oh, in about 2005, I started reading books watching DVDs, and uh, then I started taking classes at the student rec center when I uh, went back for my degree in business. And um, I really enjoyed it. I did Bikram yoga, the hot yoga, for uh, about a year, and Iyengar, which is pretty popular, and power yoga. And um, then I had a friend who uh, encouraged me to teach. She was a Pilates instructor. 
and I'd been doing yoga for about five years, and she'd always ask me a lot of yoga questions, and so I started teaching in 2010, and um, this whole time, you know, uh, in my adulthood, I continued running, I enjoyed running, and I took fitness classes, uh, you know, Pilates and Zumba and, and whatever, and um, then I injured myself running, I got some stress fractures in my uh, lower legs, so I was told to look into strength training as a way to recover from that, uh, build up the muscles in my legs, and uh, uh, strengthen my bones, and I got the uh, new rules lifting for women, lift like a goddess, or lift like a man, look like a goddess. And um, then I got to the point where I had run out of weight at home, and I either needed to invest in a home gym or join a gym. And um, I had a lot of friends who were CrossFitters in various places, and uh, one friend who owns a CrossFit box out in New York. So I dropped in at the uh, CrossFit box in my town, which was uh, late summer of 2011, and I I enjoyed it. You know, it was it was fun, and I liked the community aspect of it. And so while I was there, um, that fall into the year, the owner of the box had heard about a powerlifting competition, which um, I didn't know Phil at the time, but Phil and Sarah were hosting it here at Strength Guild, and uh, the owner encouraged everyone to participate. Well, I was actually the only person that went and competed, and I actually really enjoyed it. Got to meet Phil and Sarah, and Phil and I kept talking on Facebook a little bit, and um, they invited me out to do a strong woman competition in Manhattan, Kansas, which I also really enjoyed. So after my first powerlifting competition, I wanted to keep competing in powerlifting, but I wasn't quite ready to leave CrossFit. And of course, I was still teaching yoga and practicing yoga this whole time. Um, but on the strength side of it, I was trying to mesh powerlifting training, uh, periodized schedule and all of that with CrossFit, which is totally random, and I never knew what the workouts were going to be, and it just wasn't really meshing together. And I'd still been talking to Phil and went out and had him work with me on some of my lifts, one-on-one uh, -on -one sessions, and eventually I just ended up going to Strength Guild and uh, doing all my training over here at Strength Guild. And so in 2012, I did three powerlifting meets and that strong woman competition I mentioned. And uh, so far this year, we've done two powerlifting meets and then the, uh, the Cure for Cody competition, which was like strong woman. Okay. If I yeah. can ask before we go to break, um, mm -hmm. you were the only one to compete, uh, you said, from your CrossFit yes. box. Yes. Why did you do that? Why did I do it? Yeah. Uh, I, I was excited about it. I enjoyed lifting, and I, I'm a competitive person by nature, and I like structure. And so the idea of a powerlifting meet really appealed to that part of me. And... Um, I, I was so nervous. <laughs> First competition, <laughs> I was so terribly nervous. I'm there in a singlet, never been up in front of people in a singlet before. I'd never met these people before. Um, the owner of the box did go with me. My husband went with me as well. Um, so I did have a little bit of a crew with me, a couple of familiar faces. Um, I really don't know why I was so compelled to do it, but it was. I'm the sort of person that I'm like, if I if I make a decision that I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And I had made the decision and committed to doing that and in my form, and uh, I yeah, I was hooked. It was a great experience. That's interesting because you're not a you're not a real big person, are you? No, no. I'm yeah. five foot eight, and at that time I was about 120 pounds. I've I've put on about 15 pounds since then. See, I'd love to hear stories like this, or even when we had Fred Hatfield on. He's not a huge person either. I think most people, they get this idea in their head that to be in powerlifting or in bodybuilding, you've got to be this behemoth. And there are weight classes, right? There are different yeah, categories. Exactly. So, you mm -hmm. know, it, it's all relative. And I think the weight classes idea appealed to me because it, it levels the playing field somewhat. Of course, you know, a girl that's five foot and the same weight has a, a different amount of muscle mass than I do. Um, but, you know, CrossFit doesn't have weight classes, and I couldn't, I haven't really ever been able to compete with the women that are 
you know, 185 pounds. I'm never going to be that big. Uh, so that part of powerlifting really appeals to me and, and continues to appeal to me. I think that's good education for uh, the general public. You know, they need to understand because I think there's that trepidation that, well, you're not huge. You can't be in bodybuilding or, you know, you're not huge. You can't be a powerlifter. Well, that's that's just a level of ignorance. I think we need to help people understand, you know, get get beyond right. that. So. Right. Well, I think it's been I think it's neat. I mean, like Kay came in, in the first year, you know, the last six months or so, we stayed at the 123 class and then made the decision to go 132. And you've got a reason to gain, aside from just gaining weight. You know, you're changing weight classes. And, you know, we've added 100 pounds onto her deadlift in a year. You know, she just hit a 300 at 132 pounds. So uh, That's an interesting point, Phil. I, I know we need to go to break here, but um, one of the things that you see in bodybuilding and powerlifting is over time as people become more adept, they go up in weight class. You can't help yeah. it. It's almost accidental. You get stronger, you get bigger, you put on more muscle, you're heavier. You know, and now don't get me wrong. There are some people who like to stay in a weight class, and that's okay too. But yeah. I, I would think more often than not, you accidentally move up in weight class over the years because yeah. it simply becomes just bigger and stronger. Right. Okay. For sure. Okay. No, I think that's definitely a, you know, something that happens all the time. But we'll go to break, and then we'll come back, and we're going to talk about uh, the, the topic of the day. So I don't. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for 69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the 99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's gonna drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180 day rentals and one year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everybody, we're back, and again, we got Kay. Um, she's a powerlifter, a yoga instructor, and, uh, you know, among other numerous things. And we're going to talk about um, kind of yoga and how it fits into strength sports a bit or athleticism. And, you know, first we want to start off with, Kay, if you could define, you know, what, what is yoga? Well, uh, yoga is a pretty ancient practice. I think some of the first mentions of, of yoga, what we think of yoga in text is about 3,000 years ago, which is a very long time. But of course, it, it doesn't really resemble what we do today. It started out as a um, spiritual practice for the most part, 
and Western yoga has moved away from that. At least certain types of Western yoga have. The types that I practice have moved away from that. Um, so it, it came to the U.S. Uh, late 1800s, I believe. And again, it was, it was still more of a uh, spiritual practice and meditative and then in the 50s and 60s, it evolved into more of a strength and flexibility training. And some of the spiritual aspects dropped away or were separated into other forms of yoga. And, and what we see in the U.S. or the Western world these days is uh, Hatha yoga. And uh, it's, it's sort of a, an umbrella term. Ha means sun and means moon and so it's the uh, pose counterpose sort of structure and then within that we have all these different types of yoga ashtanga power yoga vinyasa iyengar and they all have different focuses um, so and some people define things a little bit differently but uh, that's sort of my brief history of yoga and, and my main focus is hatha yoga uh, pose counterpose structure and um, which actually fits quite well with, with athletics, I found. Purpose-wise, then, purpose-wise, goal-wise, what is, like, the ultimate goal of yoga for the practitioner? Well, that's really pretty individual. Uh, a lot of people use yoga as a way to move. You know, a lot of us don't move a lot in our daily lives, so they use yoga as a movement practice. Uh, a lot of people use it to reduce stress, which it certainly has that component to it. And uh, people, some people use it to get stronger, certainly more flexible. Uh, a lot of people lose flexibility as they get older. Kids are really flexible. I love having kids in class. They're so much fun. But uh, adults lose that as we get older. So flexibility training, you know, stress relief, those are two, bi two main things. I imagine the relaxation aspects are why it was sort of um, combined with the meditative aspects early Absolutely. on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I still include a meditative portion at the end. It's called Shavasana, where you lie on your back. Um, uh, Shavasana translates to corpse pose. So the whole idea is to lie there as still as you can and simply to breathe. And uh, some people take it different ways. I instruct people to not think about anything in particular, just to lie there and, and breathe and focus on their, their breath. And that's certainly the meditation aspect. And then I... I do meditate, but I, I do that separately from yoga for the most part. You know, I actually, um, fairly recently, I actually was taken through a little bit of a yoga session by a, a um, instructor at the academy that I attended, and she um, had us do it just, just I, I supp I, my figuring is she had us do it for the kind of the, to broaden our scope of, you know, um, what is a, possible for us to do for different uh, you know elements of physical fitness and relaxation and so forth mm -hmm. and um, not that I ever doubted that uh, you know yoga when done properly was difficult but I was actually <laughs> <laughs> I was actually blown away with how outrageously uncomfortable I found it um, right and that's, movements that's and so forth common. it was yeah it was uh it was crazy, and like I like I say, I, I would have been the last person to ever trash on yoga before that. But I mean, even still, um, after having actually gone through it, I was uh, <laughs> I was like blown away, actually. So, here's an interesting question: before we go to the other, before we go the opposite way, um, has your strength training then benefited your yoga? It has. Uh, the stronger I get, the better. I've found that I am as a yoga practitioner. The, the style of yoga that I practice personally is called Ashtanga. Um, and there's, there's three different levels of Ashtanga. There's primary, secondary, and tertiary. And I'm in the secondary level, but I still practice the primary. They get harder as you go along and more complicated. And as I've gotten stronger, I've found that I'm able to achieve poses that I had never thought I would be able to do before. Arm balances where your body weight is balanced on your hands, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, I really enjoy that aspect of it. 
And I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I hit the point. The, the reason I'm pointing that is a lot of people get into the flexibility thing, and I guess uh, if we lump flexibility, agility, and mobility into one kind of category, mm-hmm. they they kind of forget that strength is a component of that. There's a lot of moves uh, in mobility and especially agility that if you don't have the strength for it, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's go the other way. Um, how has it you know, your your yoga practice um, benefited and possibly hampered powerlifting? All right. Well, I have a whole list of things, of ways that it benefits, and there are some detractions. Uh, I'll start with the... I'll start with the benefits of, of yoga for the strength athlete in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. the, one is um, range of motion. You know, the, the flexibility developed through yoga practice allows for greater flexibility in your major, major joints, like the hips and shoulders, which are two areas of focus in all of my classes, and, and your spine as well, of course. Um, so if, if you're super tight in your hips or your shoulders or your spine, it can prevent you from getting to depth in your squat. Hips and ankles are especially important when it comes to the squat, uh, when you clean or if you're doing a snatch. And even for some people, they're so tight they can't even hardly reach down to grab a bar that's on the floor. Uh, and so that, that lack of flexibility would hamper your ability to perform those movements. And um, shoulder mobility is especially important for weightlifters. There are certain poses that I always throw in if I have a weightlifter in class. And then um, for me, uh, the spinal arch, I have a very flexible spine. So my spinal arch for bench press is pretty great because I have these long arms and I'm able to reduce the distance that the bar has to travel because I can do a nice big arch. Um, and also, you know, there's the round back deadlift, and I know people go back and forth about that, but as far as upper back rounding, I'm personally stronger when I allow my thoracic spine to round for heavy deadlifts and maintaining the lumbar curve in the squat. Uh, some people have difficulties keeping that lower back curved. Uh, another point I would say is kinesthetic awareness. So... You learn to be aware of where your body parts are in relation to the rest of you and and your center of gravity. So there's a lot of yoga poses where you can't see where your hands or your feet are, where your legs are, uh, because if you turn your head, you might fall over. So uh, that helps you, especially for things like weightlifting, where you uh, you know you can't see the bar path. You've just got to do it. You've got to know where that bar is moving. Same thing with your depth in the squat. You know, you can't watch yourself in a mirror every time you squat to see if you get below parallel or hit parallel. Um, and, of course, balance. Balance is incredibly important. Um, and I always have balance components in all of my classes. And uh, this is important for weightlifters, obviously, when you're moving weight overhead. Uh, the, the squat when you're walking out a heavy bar you know, you don't want to fall forward or backwards, obviously. Um, I'd also say neuromuscular control is something that you learn through yoga. Uh, um, you learn to control your muscle groups uh, at will rather than simply by reaction. You know, especially important in firing the glutes as you come out of the hole in the squat and locking out on your deadlift. Uh, you are able to control that. Um, and breathing. I mean, breathing is incredibly important. Um, if you're an endurance athlete, if you're a crossfitter, a weightlifter, and, um, you know, you need to be able to recover after your event or after your lift. And uh, so breath control, it's called uh, pranayama in yoga. Um, and I always have breathing exercises in yoga. You learn how to control your breath. It aids in recovery following heavy lift. Um, you know, strongman or CrossFit, you've got these um, difficult events, and then you've got to recover and be ready to go for the next thing. And if you can't catch your breath, it's going to take you a lot longer to recover. So you learn to control your breath and keep it going at a pace and, and then recovering after your, you know, high level of exertion. And if then, I can, oh, yeah. I was just going to say, if I can interject on a couple of those things. One, um, the muscular control thing, mm-hmm. 
I think you, you can see that demonstrated by a lot of bodybuilders, you know, who can flex their soleus and not their gastroc as much. Or, yeah. you sure. know, it's, you know, that normal people, they just don't have that sort of proprioceptive awareness, you know. Right. Um, but you also said something, and I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show, you guys, but squatting without a mirror. Have we talked about this before? That was a brilliant point because, you know, that's one thing a lot of bodybuilders are used to doing. That I think powerlifters aren't as um, um, dependent on a mirror, you know. But a lot of bodybuilders, it's hell for them. Uh, and I don't want to generalize, in, you know, too broadly, but to try to squat without a mirror, I found that difficult the first time I started doing that. You know, back in the power room in Pe- Pep's gym, um, like Kay said, you know, you you've got to say, okay, that's I'm I'm at depth or I'm below parallel, and mm-hmm. without question, you know that. You know, and uh, it's hard to do that. It's almost like the mirror is like training wheels. You got to lose the training wheels at some yeah, point. Yeah, and the first time I ever, do. the first time I ever tried to do that was when uh-huh. I moved down to, to Ohio there the first time, Lonnie, when uh, in the back there and I, with just the uprights. And uh, yeah, I remember that being a strange sensation after having used a mirror for so 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 long. Um, but it's actually interesting now that it's gone the other way for me now. It, it almost feels strange when I have a mirror in front of me. It almost feels somehow um, less genuine. Uh, it, I, I know that makes no sense, but I, I don't. But it feels that way now. So I've I've gotten so used to not having the mirror in front of me. So, right. Um, and I mean, I've and I've done it both. Body awareness is a huge thing. Body awareness is, is gigantic. You know, and 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 I think that's the. Sorry to interrupt. I think that's a major point that I think that. I think everybody who does squat routinely and regularly should at least do, if not not to do it. Uh, in an effort to kind of make it habitual, but at least just for the point that you're making, that is the body awareness aspect of it, because I find it takes you to a whole another level of being being able to kind of have that awareness by doing that. So even if on uh, just, you know, randomly once in a while kind of a thing. Well, you do gain something from it. I know, Rob, you were the first one to drag me into um, heavy squats in those freestanding uprights. You know, not even in a rack, but just with the uprights. Yeah. And that is a whole new ball of wax. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. It's uh, is it because yeah, because you don't even have these safety rails, so it really kind of really puts you in kind of a position there. So, well, it makes you really have to dominate the weight and be completely aware of, you know, like Kay was saying, balance. It's it's not just how deep you're going, but left, right, pitch forward, lean back. You know what muscles are getting fired? How much of it? This is glute versus lower back versus whatever. You know and. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, something that Phil has mentioned uh, in training with me is that I can usually tell what I've done wrong just by feel. He doesn't have to always tell me what I'm doing wrong. I, I can I can feel it. And I think that's especially important for people that don't have a coach watching them all the time. If you're training on your own, you need to be able to tell what it is that you are needing to adjust. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, no, that, that definitely isn't. How about, you know, maybe we go into aspects where, where it hinders you a bit, maybe. Sure. Uh, so there there is such a thing as too much flexibility when it comes to strength sports. And I will, I am the first one to say that my squat is never going to be amazing because I do not have that tightness. And my squat is a little, I have to do it a little bit differently than people who are tighter uh, in the sense that I have to do a fast squat. I come down and I have to throw myself back up. There's no winding up of a spring or anything like that. There's, I'm just so loose, especially in my hamstrings. Um, I've got to, I drop down and I throw myself back up. Um, and, you know, deadlift, if you have a really flexible spine and you aren't able to keep your, your lumbar locked in place, that's obviously going to hinder you with, with the deadlift, uh, and you could, could lead to injury possibly. And, you know, I'd say for the, for the bench press, uh, you know, that, that tightness a lot of people can get as they bring the bar down, like, you know, tightening the spring. Um, I don't have that either. I, again, that's, I'm just throwing the bar up there off of my chest so um and and it won't get you stronger if you're an if if you're a strength athlete um it it can help you get more out of your strength training but it's it's not going to make you stronger 
Now, if you're someone that has never really done any sort of resistance training, um, it can develop strength up to a certain point, uh, just as any body weight exercise will. Um, and certain styles of yoga are more strength focused than others, but you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to look like a bodybuilder and you're not going to, to be in power lifter strength uh, levels. Okay, that's it. That's a great point. Rob and I once, uh, I think it's in the experiments versus experience uh, audio section of the Iron Radio site, but mm-hmm. we were talking about how other sports, you know, whether weight training helps or hinders other sports and vice versa. And that's kind of what you're saying there, I think, which is, you know, up to a point, uh, these kinds of things can be mutually beneficial. Uh, like I noticed, for example, my own weightlifting helped my Taekwondo for years, and it, it just kept getting better and better and better. And then, but at some point, um, Phil, I think you once said the man who chases two rabbits doesn't eat, mm-hmm. right? And I kind of got to that stage at some point that I'm like, I can't continue to pursue the bodybuilding any further if I continue doing competitions with the martial arts stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So at some point, it, there's almost a necessary divergence because of the specificity that's required. And uh, yeah, definitely. And much the same. Like if Kay were to come to me and say, I want to be the world record holding 132-pound power lifter. To get her there, we would tighten things up that would make her yoga practice hard. You know, she'd lose some poses. Yeah, you know, right, yeah. Type of thing. Um, no, for sure. I think you know, what, what I'd like to hit in the last 14 minutes or so here is two different things. Um, and you can start wherever you want. Let's. I want to say what you would suggest then for a yoga practitioner, mm-hmm. how much strength training should they do and then vice versa you know you have somebody that's serious in the weightlifting you know as we've seen and you see it all the time nowadays it's not just it's not just people walking the streets but it's a lot of people in athletics are they're tight in the hips mm-hmm. uh usually the thoracic's locked down too stuff like that vice versa how about the strength athlete how much yoga should they do to stay to, to combat that well i would say if you're a strength athlete and you're you're training three to five times per week uh, one yoga session a week, one, you know, maybe a, an hour and a half long or an hour and 15 minute long class and then maybe 30 minutes of doing it on your own is, mm-hmm. is going to give you the benefits that you're looking for without taking too much away yeah. from your training. However, if you're peaking for an event, uh, you're going to want to back off on any of the more strenuous yoga. You know, the, as you're peaking, you're going to want to reduce the difficulty level of your yoga and, Switch to a more restorative style, which is uh, pretty pretty low stress on the body. I think uh, the literature is going to back a lot of that up. I mean, uh, if I can offer this real quick, because it's exactly what you're talking about here. There was a 2013 paper, it was a Japanese paper by Matsuo and colleagues, Journal of Strength Conditioning Research, and they had people doing different amounts of flexibility, and they they looked at what it did to their passive and dynamic strength. Mm-hmm. And I think this is sort of what you were saying. I mean, this is more acutely, of course, but it said that isometric muscle force significantly decreased after all stretching durations. Um, they did 20-second, 60-second, uh, and then three-minute and five-minute uh, stretchings in, in random order. And then they looked at some of these things. It said um, over 180 seconds of stretching, so three minutes, of course, was required to decrease dynamic uh, passive torque uh, and it said, but isometric muscle force decreased regardless of the stretching duration. And in, in conclusion, these results indicate that longer durations of stretching are needed to provide better flexibility. So longer durations to get your flexibility, great. But I think if you go at it for too long, you can actually start affecting dynamic, you know, strength. Well, that's why I've always qu- wondered why people who go in and, you know, guy, people who are... Um, looking to build maximal size and so forth. They always before You always see them before they do their bench pressing. When they first get into the gym, they start stretching like hell. Mm-hmm. And I, or, or with any kind of movement, you know, even squatting, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, exactly for the same reason. So, and, and to go back to what you were saying about um, uh, the whole idea, like if you're training three to five times a week, you know, if, if, if you yoga probably won't, you know, adversely negative just off-season type training if you do it like once or so a week. You know, I, I I agree with this whole kind of idea that Phil was saying earlier about, you know, chasing two rabbits and all that kind of thing. Um, definitely because, um, you know, I, at certain times with a lot 
uh, several years as Lonnie and Phil know, I've, I've had to kind of really push for a, uh, to better my ability to run. Mm-hmm. And contrary to what I w- originally thought before I ever started, if I ran once or twice a week, um, you know, and I, of course I'm not talking about huge distances, you know, like for like 45 minute runs or anything like that. But if I only ran twice twice a week or so, I I notice a lot of improvement in that aspect, but very very little negative impact on my lifting. So, mm-hmm. um, so in much the same way, I think absolutely. Um, I don't I don't see one or two yoga sessions or anything else particularly negative. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the main thing I wanted to touch on here is everybody starts thinking their coach tells them, "Oh, your hip flexors are tight." So they go from doing zero stuff to 14 times a week they're doing stretches for 30 minutes. And it's like it doesn't – everybody wants to blast things to, to, to where it needs to go when they can take a lot more patient approach and, hey, I'm going to do this for an hour a week. And it's going to get me get me there. Yeah. You know, then they don't have to devote 17 hours a week and this and that. And it's, it's a lot more handleable and you create a – you know, make it a habit. You know? Did you say handleable? Yeah. <laughs> is that a word? Is that, is that a word? It is now. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, I definitely agree with the the patience aspect. You know, you you need to take your time with it. Just like with lifting, you can't expect to get super strong right away. You know, you can't expect to get super flexible right away either. It it takes time, and you know, other than. I definitely learned a lot of patience from from yoga, also from being married to my husband, but definitely from uh, yoga, and which I think aids me mentally in my strength training because I I'm totally fine with the amount of time that it's going to take to get to where I want to be. Well, it's all I've often said the biggest drawback to pretty much success in anything these days, certainly in the in the society we live in now, is is the the, the requirement of patience, and yeah, certainly no more. Is that required then in any sort of weight training capacity? Because I always tell young guys at the gym, like, if, you, if you're looking for a quick turnaround, this is the wrong thing to do, you know, because, and I've said this very, very many times, like, you know, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm not saying this in any sort of critical way or kind of a put-down way on whatever I'm using as an example, but for instance, like mixed martial arts or something like that, you can get to be, if you're athletically inclined and you've had a history of being athletic for several years at least, and you go and you train really hard at this thing, within two or three years, again, if you have enough athleticism and, and, and natural talent, you could rise to quite high rankings in, in that type of endeavor. Mm-hmm. But, but with the same talent as it would go towards, I don't care how much natural talent you have or how much nobody squats 900 pounds in two years. No. You know, um, certainly with any, you know, degree of reasonable, you know, with a, but you just don't do it. So it, it, you really do need a lot of patience. It's a well, that slow, back to- slow, slow thing. I mean, this is, right. you know, for most people, we're talking like, you know, decades, really. To, to yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that's what harkens back to what Kay was saying about, you know, the appeal of something that's structured and systematic. I mean, whether it's yoga or a, a martial art, I mean, something like, you know, kendo or different types of martial arts. I mean, there are years, re- there's requirements, you know, at different belt levels. You have to have done this for so yeah. many years. Exactly. And, and it's very funny. structured and, you know, you can't just, yeah, because you're tough or you have some natural skill. Oh, I got my, you know, fourth degree black belt in two years because, you know, I, accelerated the process that, that you're missing the point yeah right. you know. exactly i mean it takes no, we had actually pondered about doing that here I, I had thought about instituting not a belt maybe a patch or something like that when people have you know oh you've gained the ability to squat correctly i don't know you're like a yellow patch squatter and now you've gained the, the ability to do it and teach it and try and bring that into the weight world because it is very progressive mm-hmm. you right. know but i mean no it's you know, cool not, you're basically um systematize it. We're making up all kinds of words. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the reasoning behind that is I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of people squat like 500 pounds and look horrible. You know? Right. And at the same time I've seen some people that are, you know, smaller people squat 135 and it's textbook. Lonnie knows, I've said this so many times, just yeah. because you're incredibly strong or something doesn't mean you really necessarily when I say no you're doing, of course, if you're incredibly strong you have at least more than the average, 
<laughs> into you know, edu- you know education towards that. But but you know, in relative sense, you can get some very um, again just by virtue of a person's natural ability and talent, and then as we all know, you know, like heaping amounts of you know a certain drug and hormonal chem- you know supplementation, so forth. You can get guys who squat you know five hundred pounds for five or ten reps. And really, they don't really know a lot about the right. movement. They're, and they're certainly, to anybody like Phil or somebody or myself, they, they're certainly, when you talk to them, you can sense that they're not, uh, this is a cheesy way of putting it, but they're not certainly not a master of the movement as far as understanding. Yeah. They're squatting 500 despite right. themselves. Despite how poorly they do I mean, and I can, I'm, I'll, I'll just say some, some names because I don't even really care. I mean, you get guys like professional bodybuilders, and I can say firsthand guys like Paul Dillette. These guys... Is at you know at his largest and most successful as a bodybuilder. I mean, the guy was unbelievable. But if you watched him train at that point, you would be amazed at how, excuse my French, shitty he was as a technician. Like you could tell he really didn't know beyond the very basic level what he was doing. to a lot of these guys, again, they just build muscle so easily, and when they're on so much stuff, you know, they can just grab dumbbells and barbells and just kind of move this way, that way, kind of do little spasmic jerks here. I mean, I saw a, a well-known Canadian professional bodybuilder years ago um, training his traps, and I mean, it, it was the most, I mean, his traps were freakish. They came right up underneath his ears, and I mean, his, his, his trap workout was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life with the most kind of pathetic weights I've ever seen in my life. And when he was training them, it looked like he was just basically having little spastic, you know, shocks that were going through his body. Exactly. It was the most ridiculous thing. And he, and he walked out of there with the most unbelievable pump that I've ever seen in my life. And he, and he really didn't do really anything, but well, just I think that's true, Rob, for 20 across minutes. the board. I mean, th- that's true across the board. If you see, you know, when beginners see, uh, whether it's a power lifter or a bodybuilder, they're a combination of gift and gas. You know, they're incredibly strong or super huge. Gift um, and gas, it, I like that. It, it goes against what we're saying here, which is the beauty of these things, all these pursuits, which is discipline and patience and time and perfection and technicianhood, another word. Uh, you know, and that's what I've valued about those things is the artistry and, you know, the technical aspects and that sort of thing. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you see somebody who, you know, and I don't want to say just younger guys because it's not true, but anybody who's coming into it who's beginner or, inter- or intermediate, they will listen to somebody who can squat 800 pounds or, uh, you know, weighs 250 pounds in shape simply because they're so impressed. But like you said, if mm-hmm. as they learn more and they watch them train, you might be like, oh, boy, you know, you don't even know what you're doing, do you? And yet they quickly write books and they take it upon themselves to teach others based on the, their personal experience, which, of course, is a genetic train wreck, you know, because yeah. uh, everybody's different. Hey, you know, what? for a lot of you, and, 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 and in, a, in a field like bodybuilding, that's the, you know, the, the people who usually rise the ranks are not necessarily, very oftentimes, the people who probably know the, the least. And I, I say this because, along the lines of what we're talking about, the people who climb to those kind of heights are usually the people like you just, I mean, you use it perfectly there, Lonnie, the whole gift and gas kind of thing. You know, the guys who are the most naturally gifted and the guys who are most willing to and have access to the most stuff. And so their learning curve is actually very stunted very early because they go in, they have so much success yes. with just what most, you know, again, to use a cheesy term, to what master weight training kind of people would understand. They have such a basic understanding of it, but it stops so quick because they, they got so far with only the basics and they just keep doing the same thing because, you know, before you know it, like you say, they're 250 pounds at 4% body fat and they've arrived at that with, again, very limited knowledge, you know, so, so and they never get any further. So you get guys who are competing at the Mr. Olympia level and when you sit down and talk to them, you're actually stunned with how Little they know, and yeah. you're like, man, this is like I, I knew more than this after three years of training. I well, knew it this. does a disservice, right, to the general public in a lot of ways because then when they see somebody who's realistically built, let's say, but is a master technician, they get poo-pooed. You know, you see stuff on YouTube all the time, like, do you even lift, bro? You know, somebody actually said that. Who they say about? Um, 
uh, I think it's Frank Zane or something. I'm like, Frank's 70, and he can do backflips, you fool. <laughs> you know? I, I it's would, embarrassing to kind uh, of, yeah. oh, do you bro? I just want to, you know, uh, smack those yeah. people. But it's also just the fact that, you know, and, and we've brought this up so many times, that the, the, the standards... And a lot of this is is because of things like the YouTube and the Internet and so forth. You see so many examples. I mean, now you can go onto YouTube and watch, again, world-class powerlifters training, um, you know, with some guy who's just filming it with his video, with his phone. You know, it's not like 25 years ago where you'd have to go and actually spend $30 at some specialized store to buy a VHS release. You know what I mean? Like, people just see this stuff. So people start thinking... Not that it's normal necessarily, but you know what I mean? Like, it's so easily accessible that people become desensitized to it. So all of a sudden, you're looking at physiques that were world-class, like you're saying, like a Frank Zane or so forth, 35 years ago. And they're like, oh, well, now that guys who are competing in, you know, like, um, physique rounds at bodybuilding competitions are bigger than that. And it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, at the same time, again, people are considering... Again, the availability and the and it just kind of it's just become just plain Jane now that you know you go to any reasonably hardcore gym, you know a half to three quarters of the guys at least are probably going to be gassing their faces off. Pull this back in for a minute, guys, because we're pretty much out of time. I want to do one answer that last question. What, what about the somebody that's into yoga? How much strength training do you think can benefit them? I mean, do they need to do one time a week, two, three? I, I would say a couple times a week is is pretty good for someone who is already active. If they're doing yoga regularly, a lot of people will do a personal practice for 20, 30 minutes every day, and then they'll go to a class a couple times a week. So, you know, a couple of training sessions. A, a lot of really great yogis that I know, um, not that I'm fond of that term, but uh, my, my personal yoga instructor does kettlebell work. Uh, a lot of the really good... Uh, Yoga practitioners that I know enjoy doing kettlebells. It complements yoga quite a bit. And, you know, they don't need to be doing powerlifting training necessarily, but just, you know, good solid weight training would benefit their practice. They did it a couple times a week for an hour, hour and a half day. The, the other thing I wanted, you know, and I've seen it, and I've never asked you this question. You're one of the lifters here that has, when Kay steps on a platform, she is focused. One hundred percent. And I don't know pre yoga K. Is that something gained from yoga? Well, you think, or is that just naturally? Because I'm the same way, and I've never done yoga. I mean, I've done it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I would say that that particular ability was shaped by yoga, but I found that in myself as a teenager, that that inward gaze, which uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield actually talked about on uh, the Physical Culture 2.0 podcast, the ability to turn your gaze inward and, and find that calm center. That's where that's where I am when when I step on a platform. There's yeah. nothing else going on. I don't even remember my lifts when they're yeah. good. I don't remember them at all. Yeah. Um, I only remember them if they're bad. Um because I wasn't, I wasn't in the right place. See, and that's what I was getting. I didn't know if that, know if that was something that yoga could help people with or something. Being I think able to so. Mm-hmm. Well, I think okay. it definitely would. But you know, it, it's also what you're describing, Kay, is also, um, in my impression, one of the the most fundamental a- attributes attributes that a really successful athlete or anybody for that matter has is that ability just to kind of when it's time, it's time, yes. and you just completely, you know, everything just your gaze just kind of turns inward. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly why, I mean, I think, you know, to go back to the mirror thing we were talking about, I think that that's why I don't allow a mirror in my gym. It's not because I don't look at it. I, I like looking at myself. I think I'm a pretty stunning-looking guy. Well, you, you're, 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 no, you're, you're pretty <laughs> devastatingly handsome. No <laughs> um, you know, you have to be able to reach that mindless point, mm-hmm. and you've got to be able to just know the move yep. without thinking about it. And if you're constantly watching yourself, you're, you're not. Yep. You know, you've got to be able to go... Just like a tennis player. If a tennis player is getting a ball served at him and they're thinking, okay, it's going the right, the ball's past him. I've got to be able to do my squat without, I've got to go on autopilot and just be able to do it. You know, I like that analogy you just gave, Phil, the whole thing about, because I've said the same thing about baseball players. Like, I mean, because I I remember going to one of those things where it's pitching you at different speeds, like an amusement park, you know, and you could actually set the thing to pro level speed. Yeah. And I did it because, you know, being a jackass, I had no idea, but I thought, well, this is fun. I'll try and hit a freaking, you know, uh, you know, Pro. professional yeah. level freaking pitch. 
Before the machine, before. Before I even realized the machine was starting to spit the thing out, it was where the ball was behind me. And I'm thinking, you know, it really gave me this. It, it gives you this impression that, yeah, when you're at that level, at at a hundred percent reaction. I mean, yeah. you have to actually. The guy who's holding the bat has got to get all the cues from the way the pitcher's moving before he even releases the ball, to almost to kind of decide whether okay, I'm thinking I'll probably swing with this one, you know, and. Yep. That's what, you know, with, with weight training, the same kind of thing. Like, when, when you're ready to do the lift, you have to already have an – that's why I've always said to a lot of people that I've coached or talked about or kind of give advice to, I'm like, your success is kind of measured uh, – the likelihood of success is measured before kind of the bar even kind of puts pressure down on your traps or, you know, it puts pressure into your hands. I mean, if, if, if you know, you're already holding the bar – or hold it, you know, or, or have the bar kind of support on your back, or wh- whatever you're doing. And at that point, now you're starting to think about, how, you know, your kind of your your tactic and how you want to kind of approach it. You're already screwed. Yeah. Well, honestly, Rob, that's why the ability to meditate, you know, and focus on one thing like the breath, yeah, you know, is so big because it's that whole no mind concept or that idea of, you know, uh, what's that phrase? Um, when under duress, we revert to our training. Which means yeah. it's just, it's just a motor reflex almost. Yep, right. it is. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and that's a, yeah, exactly. And that's why I was wondering if that might be a benefit. Well, we better wrap it up, guys. We're a couple minutes over. I think that's okay. So yeah. Okay, thanks for joining us and talking. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yes, thanks. thank you very much. Until next time, everybody. Right? Okay. Bye bye. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best this is the ultimate source in one place little disclosure here i do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book it's such a low amount however obviously i've done it for that purpose i did it because like you i want to have something i can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns if there are any on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need. 